0: been a lot of talk tonight about mission. That's appropriate. That's what a church talks about. It's not just what a church talks about, it's what a church does. And I'm glad to see that that's what you're doing, Where your focus is, reaching out. When my wife was sick, in the last weeks of her life, she knew she was going to die soon. She decided to write letters to our family be shared with them some weeks after her death. And so I sat with laptop in my lap uh, on the couch next to her as she would dictate because the strokes that she had, she had cancer, and the, the cancer started in the pancreas, went to the liver, caused a condition that in layman's term is called sticky blood, which created blood clots. And as they broke off, they caused strokes. And actually, it was the strokes that killed her that were caused by the cancer. Um, and she she knew she didn't have long, so I'm sitting there with a the laptop, and she's dictating letters to each of our daughters and to our grandchildren and our son-in-law, and I'm they're typing and reading back, and we're editing together. And she finished those letters, uh, which I sent on to the kids six weeks after her death. But she uh, she said, "Well, I need to write a letter to you." So well, I'm uh, you got no one to. Type for you. That's just me because the, the strokes had actually taken her eyesight at that time and so she couldn't, she couldn't see the, the keyboard to type. And so I said, you, You're not going to say anything that you haven't said every day for the last 40 years. She said, No, probably not. I said, So what would you say? She said, At first I'd say no regrets. And she knows me pretty well and she knew that after her death I would think back over our marriage and although it was a marvelous marriage, I made a few mistakes, I don't know if I'm the only one here who, (laughs) (laughs) one or two here, there. And she knew I would beat myself up over those, and so she said, there are no regrets. You and I are good. We've had a good marriage and so no regrets. That was number one. And number two, she said, I want you to live our life. Now that meant something specific to me. First, it meant our commitment to Jesus. We are committed to the Gospel, a love for Jesus, and seeing Adventism through the lens of the Gospel. It's the Gospel first, Adventist second. I'm a Christian first, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist second. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because it's the truest, most biblical expression of Christianity I can find. And so that was number one, is, is the Gospel. Number two, living our life meant protecting our girls. And taking care of our family. In ministry, every now and then the family takes pot shots. And the more public the ministry, the more the pot shots. And we were committed to protecting our girls from that. So that they could live their lives normally. And I'm sorry, but pastors, you know what I'm talking about. It happens. It happens. And so she wanted me to continue to protect the girls so that they would have the opportunity to live a normal life before the Savior. Gail and I knew what we were getting into when we got into ministry. We we understood that, and we knew it was worth the effort and worth the risk. My, our oldest daughter now, by the way, is entering ministry, same church where her mother and I pastored for 17 years, taking over some of the work that her mother did there for a long time. So now she gets the pot shots. I don't protect her anymore. <laughs> but... Take care of the family. Make sure that the family is together. And number three for living our life, simply men, service. Whatever capacity God has placed me in, whether it be television or local church or any place else, that I'm to be of service to others. Just to be a servant, to be of service. That's what she wanted me to do. Which, by the way, is why I'm here. Rather than at home, curled up in a fetal position, sucking my thumb, uh, which is where I want to be. <laughs> but that's why I'm here. Um, service in the name of Christ. It's what we do. Otherwise, we're playing church. We play church until we love each other, until we love sinners, until we're safe. At church, S- you understand what I'm talking about? Sometimes church is not a very safe place. I'm sorry, but it's not. Uh, I, I think the church would be better suited, it would work better if it was more like an AA meeting. You know, where they come in, hello, my name is Joe, I've been sober for 12 days. Hello, Joe. 12 days. I, I, I wish the church could be more like that. Hello, I'm Mike. It's been five minutes since I sinned. Well, okay. Scratch that. Hello, Mike, five minutes. <laughs> Where you can be honest and open about who you are, the brokenness that we all share, and know that no one's going to gossip about it. I, I tell you, until your, your conference president can stand before the constituency and, con- and share his, his darkest sin and his deepest temptation and know that, number one, it won't cost him his job, and number two, no one outside this room will hear about it, until he can do that, we're not really a church. We're playing church that make sense to you? (laughs) We're not a church. We play church. But when that kind of authenticity and openness and vulnerability and trust and concern and integrity can take place, when that kind of love is exhibited in the church, then we're a church. And by the way, when that happens, we grow. That's how the first century church grew. Every time their, their leaders held evangelistic series, they got thrown in jail. So you didn't do a lot of those. <laughs> you know, you start running out of bodies. So, um, So one of the things they did, there's one record of a church, first century, who the people in their church, in their city were starving. And so 300 members fed 2,500 people every day. They fed 2,500 people. And they treated each other with such love as o- outsiders saw that. They said, how can I get in on this? The church grew without holding an evangelistic event. <laughs> it grew. That's church. What are the needs of my community? How, I can, how can I meet it? What are the needs of the members of my church? How can I meet those needs? How can I be of service to you? How can I represent Jesus Christ in your life today? That's church. Amen? When the church does that, the church cannot help but grow. Uh, a lot of churches are dying, and some churches should die, quite frankly. That, that sounds ugly, but unless, unless something happens to change those individuals to rightly represent the love of Jesus, the church needs to die because it's not a church. It may be a social club for saints, and Lord knows we've got enough of those. We need churches. We need men and women who care more about love and loving each other and loving their world than anything else on the planet. You get that when you understand the character of God because that's what he does. That's what God does. In fact, there's a parable that Jesus told that is often overlooked. It's not often preached. I I don't know that I can ever remember a sermon on this particular parable, and I'm going to preach it tonight. It's found in Luke's Gospel, the 12th chapter. Please open it up because we find there a picture of God that I think is appealing. It's a picture that well, shows us what we should be. But more importantly, it shows us a, a side of our God that perhaps we've not seen before, a side of service. Luke's Gospel, the 12th chapter. I'm going to read through the parable quickly, then I'm going to go back and we'll unpack it as we go. Starting with verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes back and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves." Now, it's a short parable, and at first it's easy to overlook. It's something you read on your way to the next story. But but there's a lot more here. In fact, this has fast become my favorite parable, quite frankly, because there's so much here, than more than what meets the eyes. It says, be dressed and in readiness, keep your lamps lit. If you've ever gone camping, you know how much easier it is to light a lamp when there's still light than it is in pitch dark, right? So have the lamp lit beforehand, but be dressed in readiness. And what that means in those days is, they all wore robes, right? And in, it, you, you wanted the robes not to touch you any place because it's hot. My wife had a nightgown that she loved and I hated. It was called the Green Blob. At least that wasn't my name for it. She loved it because it did not touch her anywhere. It was a sack. <laughs> and I hated that thing. <laughs> but she loved it. Now, since her death, actually, you know, you, you, I got rid of all the other nightgowns. Uh, I've got the green blob hanging in the closet, and I don't know why. Because she loved it, so it's still hanging there. I don't know why. Everything else is gone, but the green blob is there. But that's, you know, it didn't touch her anywhere. That's what you do in hot hot times. And so the, But when it came time to work, because these robes were just barely off the floor, when it's time to work, you, you need the robe up higher. So they would take a belt or a rope and tie it around the waist, and that would pull it up just enough where now they can work. It gets the robe off the floor. W- they, they gird themselves so that now they could wor- work. They just tie the belt on, and so now they're ready for work. So it's saying if you're a slave waiting for your master who's at the wedding feast, make sure that your lamp is lit and that you're girded, you've got the belt on, you're ready for physical labor when the master comes back. It says blessed are those slaves, those servants. Uh, it says be dressed in readiness when, uh, with your lamps lit. Verse 36, be like men who are waiting, that word waiting, there are different kinds of waiting. There is like a waiting for, uh, for the bus to come in, there's waiting for this sermon to get over, which can be uh, kind of long, tedious waiting, or there's eager anticipation. That's ki- the kind of waiting that is implied here, eager anticipation, waiting for the master to return. Be like men who are waiting eagerly for their master when he returns, and that word returns in some languages, in Arabic languages, where, where they have translated this, they say slips away from or breaks away from. And that may be a better translation. But like men who are anxiously waiting for their master when he breaks away from the wedding feast. So in other words, the wedding feast is still going on. But the master has broken away before the, the feast is over. He's broken away to go back to his room, and this he finds the slaves there who are waiting. They're ready. Now, the slavery in those days was different than these days. Usually you didn't stay in slavery any longer than about seven years, and sometimes not that long, and, and, but there were certain circumstances where you could stay longer. It was under dire circumstances. You had a debt too great to repay. Anyone, any race could be a slave. It, if you fell on hard enough times, then you could be a slave, but only for a certain amount of time. And if you owed the debt to a kind master, you were blessed. These are people who have a kind master. They're anxiously awaiting his return. He's kind to them. They love him. They're happy to serve him. He has paid a debt for them that is too great for them to repay. They owe him everything. They are his slaves. Paul referred to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. He owed him a debt. He didn't want out of that servitude. He wanted to stay in. He was anxiously awaiting the return of his master. Blessed are those who are girded, lamps lit, anxiously awaiting for their master when he breaks away from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door when he comes and knocks. Now that's a curious thing to say, and here's why. In, in that world, at that time, if you went to bed for the night and you closed the door and you locked it from the inside, when someone knocked, you did not open. You did not open a knocked door after the dark. Because you didn't know who was out there, and they might be up to mischief. So if your friend needed you after you had retired, they would call. They might call and knock. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and answers me, I will come in. and sup with him. He's knocking and calling because you recognize his voice. He wants to fellowship with you. He would call out to you rather than just knock, because you don't open the door to someone who knocks, that's a stranger. But you'll recognize your your friend's voice. Hey, Joe, it's me, Ted, open the door. I need some help. You'll open the door to your friend because you trust him. And yet this master breaks away from the wedding feast early and knocks at his own door. What's going on? The only explanation that I can come up with is this. The wedding feast is in the master's house. And it's a great house. And in, in that house, there would be a, 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 a large number of people who lived there and then some who came in on the day for, uh, as a day laborer. First of all, there would be the master and his family. And then there would be the steward, who was over all the affairs of the, of the household and would manage the finances and oversee everything. Then there were the foremen who took care of the different areas of the household responsibilities. Then there were the regular salaried workers who lived there. Then you had the day workers who would come in during the day and would labor. And then finally, you had the slaves, lowest people on the totem pole. And so the master is breaking away from that house to these slaves, but he's breaking away from the wedding party, which is his own house, and it's a big, big house, and he's knocking at an inner door, a door that opens to the rest of the house. And if he's breaking away early, he doesn't want the rest of the wedding party to know that he's left early, which means it's probably the wedding of his own son. Being held in his own home, he breaks away early and returns back to where his slaves are, not wanting to alert the rest of the guests that he's gone. If he calls out to hear his voice and recognize he's gone, he just knocks slightly, very lightly, knowing that his slaves will hear and will open the door to him because they're they're not afraid of who's outside. This is either the master or the wedding guest. This is safe. They'll open to a knock because it's an inner door opening to the rest of the house. It continues. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert. Verse 37 when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. And have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. The master comes back. He breaks away from the wedding feast in his own home, perhaps for his own son, early. He comes back to his slaves. He could have sent a waiter, but he doesn't. He comes himself. And so as not to alert the guests that he's gone, he knocks lightly. And his, his slaves open the door, eager to greet him. He comes in, but he does something strange. Instead... Instead of starting to disrobe and get ready for bed, he goes over and picks up a belt and girds himself. And the slaves are saying, what on earth are you doing? We do that. We're girded. We're ready. We, we're ready to work. We work for you. you don't, what are you going to do? Scrub the floors, master? He girds himself. And then he says to them, I want you to recline at my table. They protest. No, that's your table. We're slaves. We don't do this. He's going to serve them. Never in Middle Eastern culture do you find any instance in any literature of a master serving slaves. Never happens. Does not happen. Totally turning upside down the whole social strata. Does not happen. But this master says to his slaves, you recline at my table. Now what's he going to feed them? They have not prepared food because he's been at the wedding feast. Knowing that he's already eaten, he'll come back late. He will be full. Uh, We won't feed him anything. We'll just help him get ready for bed. What's he going to feed them? Here's what's happened. The master thinks of his slaves missing the wedding feast. He gets a tray. He goes to the wedding food, and he puts the choicest cuts of meat and bread and fruits and vegetables. He loads up the tray. It's his food anyway. No one's going to question him. He puts a napkin over it, and when no one's looking, he scurries away, goes to the inner door of his room, knocks on it, the slaves open. He sets down the tray, girds himself, says, you guys sit down at the table. I'm serving you. You, you can't ser- You know what comes to mind? It's the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Serving the, the broken body, the shed blood of our Savior. The Master serving the slaves. You sit down at my table because I'm serving you today. Master, no, you can't do this. Yes, I'm the master. I give the orders here You recline at my table. And the master serves the slaves the choicest foods from the wedding feast. I think of the wedding feast that's going to happen in heaven. The wedding feast of the Lamb when the Lamb marries the bride, the church, those who have has served him in his name, those who have trusted in the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus Christ, those who have persevered, trusting their master. Now the father says, I'm going to serve you at the wedding feast of my own son. He says to you, recline at my table. Well, I serve you. Whether he comes at the second watch about 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Or even the third, 2 a.m. to to sunrise, and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. The picture of God serving you at his table is just unthinkable. But that's the picture Jesus paints for us of who divinity is. He is perfect and righteous and holy altogether, and you and I are anything but. We have rebelled. We have broken his heart time and time again. We've turned our backs upon him. We are weak. We are feeble. We can't do anything to save ourselves. He's done all the work for us at the cost of his son, We can't even be good without his help. He has to work in us to make us look anything at all like him. And we fight and we squabble among ourselves over nothing at all. I've seen churches break up over the color of carpet. God help us. I've seen churches fight over the style of worship. God help us. That's who he has invited into his kingdom. He does the work and he brings us mess though we are There, and then it's not just enough that we show up. It's not enough that we slip in the back door. Nah. He says, you're going to recline at my table, and I will serve you. (laughs) You figure that one out. You tell me how we lucked out to have that kind of a God. You tell me, and, and then we'll both know, I don't get it. But that's who he is. He will serve you at his table. How did we get the picture of this stern, foreboding, angry, judgmental, harsh, hateful God? Where did we get that? I grew up with that picture. I, I was on my way out of this church because of that picture. A picture of a God who was beating me over the head with stuff. A picture of a God who was waiting for my hair to get too long so he could condemn me. A picture of a God who was waiting for a girl's skirt to get too short so he could condemn her. To eat the wrong thing, to, to who knows what else. The rules were myriad and I couldn't keep up with them all and I went it out. It wasn't until someone loved me enough to paint a picture of Jesus, as I think more as he is, and introduced me to the gospel that I said, all right, I'll stay. That's what I want. He broke my heart with the gospel. And because of when I saw, the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice for me, when I saw that, it changed everything. Since a boy, I knew I was supposed to be a minister, and I did not want to do that. Which, by the way, if you struggle with that call, that that is a sign of intelligence. (laughs) I did not want to do that. He drugged me into ministry kicking and screaming. Still scream every now and then. <laughs> he drugged me in. Did not give me an opportunity to say no. Too long a story to tell now. But that's what he did. He broke my heart with his love. He showed me a, a part of himself, a side of himself I'd never seen before. And it changed everything for me. How about you? Some years ago, I was asked to speak at a camp meeting. It was uh, Kansas, Nebraska. And they were saving money at the time. They were short of funds. So they were going to have a one-weekend camp meeting. They flew me in and put me up in the girls' dormitory guest room there on the campus of Union College. If you've been there, you've know you got that campus. And then you've got this stone uh, archway that kind of leads the way over to where the campus church is across the street. It's a big kind of a semicircle church kind of wraps around you there. They flew me in to preach one weekend, so I was going to preach Friday night, two times Sabbath morning, one Sabbath afternoon, one Saturday night, and one Sunday morning, then believe, because um, I had another appointment. They were getting their money's worth out of me, I'm telling you. So I, I flew in, and um, Friday night is about time for the meeting, and I get dressed, and I start walking over, Bible in hand, and I walk by that arch, and I see this old guy, old guy, he's my age, <laughs> that's telling um standing there underneath the arch looking at it and i said i got it figured out yeah i think i could do that you in construction yeah i am where you from kansas what's your name larry enjoying camp meeting nope (laughs) you're not no why are you here well i started going to this little church in kansas and They thought I needed it, so they brought me here. Going to the meeting tonight? Don't know. I think you ought to go. Why? I'm preaching. (laughs) What are you talking about? Jesus? Maybe. Well, I'll tell you what. When I stand up to preach, I'm looking for you, Larry. I'm looking for you. I want you to be there. We'll see. I go over the meeting time for me to preach and I stand up and I'm looking for Larry and the place is full so you know I'm looking pretty hard for him and finally I spot him he's standing he's not sitting down he's standing at the very back of the church back against the wall right next to the door just in case (laughs) just in case arms folded like this kind of glaring at me you know you know just waiting I preached the gospel that night I preached the gospel as hard as I know how to preach it Jesus Christ and Him crucified, righteousness by faith in Christ alone. That's what I preached that evening. And afterwards, I stood right down around here toward the front of the church, shaking hands and greeting people, and I looked up, and there's Larry. He made it all the way down, which I was quite impressed with. Roof didn't cave in on him or anything. So glad you made it, Larry. Things you say tonight true? No, Larry just made them up. Yeah, they're true, Larry. In fact, the truth is that God's better than I told you He was because I'm not smart enough to have the words to tell you how good He really is. He's better than that. Wow, he said. If that had been preached in this church when I was growing up, I never would have left it. I said, oh, so you grew up in the church? Yeah. He told me a story. Larry was born to a woman who was a drug and alcohol addict, and so severe was her addiction that at his birth, the state took him away from his mother and put him in a home. They thought that he was either insane or retarded and treated him as such. When he was six years old, they put him in a padded cell, and Larry sat in a padded cell not knowing why he was there. Larry actually couldn't hear. They never bothered to check. He was neither insane nor retarded. He was a bit ADD, but half the people in this room are ADD. I see you looking at your watches. (laughs) How long is he going to go? Playing with your smartphone, you know. I I see you. I know that because I was ADD before it was popular. (laughs) Now everybody's got it. They get medication. I never got that. I don't know. So that's what he was, ADD, but nothing else. But no one knew that at the time, sitting in a padded cell, six years old. About that time, an older couple from Kansas came to the, to the uh, home, and they said, we want to adopt your most difficult case. They said, well, that would be Larry, but you don't want him. Why not? Well, he's either insane or, or retarded. We don't know which. Where is he? We want to see him. They took him over to the psych facility, to the padded cell. They looked through the window in the steel door. that had iron mesh in the window, little window there. They saw Larry, a boy, sitting on his bed crying. They said, we'll take him. They said, we don't know who's crazier, Larry or you. They took him. They adopted him. They took him home. When they got him home, these were Seventh-day Adventists. They took him to an Adventist uh, friend of theirs who was a physician. He checked Larry out and figured out he could not hear. Fitted him with hearing aids, and Larry was neither retarded nor crazy. And he could learn he was just behind because he hadn't heard anything in six years. And so he began to speak and was catching up. He was behind everybody else, but was learning and doing quite well. Thank you. Now, the thing about his parents, though, even though they loved him and they had rescued him and fitted him with a hearing aid and uh, was taking care of him, is that his parents were legalists. That's the only thing they knew. You can't blame them for that. It's what they knew. The problem is that there's no hope in legalism because you're never good enough. If you're earning your way to heaven, when when is enough enough? It never is. There's no hope there. There's absolutely no hope, and that's all they knew, and that's what they taught Larry, and Larry never measured up. And Larry figured, if I'm not good enough for God, I want out of here. I'm not good enough. You think about his life at this point. Rejected by his mother, he thought the state put him in a home, and they rejected him, put him in a sat, padded cell. He gets adopted. Yay, that's good. But now the parents say he's not really good enough because it doesn't quite measure up. God doesn't think he measures up. The school doesn't think he measures up. He's fallen behind. so he's, behind. he's never measured up. He's a nothing and a nobody, a reject. He wanted out. And so when he graduated high school, when he got old enough, he joined the army, which was during Vietnam, and basically if you could chew gum and walk, they'd take you. And he went into the Army, and he loved the Army. He did two tours of duty in Vietnam, became a sergeant, made it a career, went to Germany, served there. He uh, was involved in a motorcycle accident, had one leg just actually came off. They put it back on, and when they did, it was about an inch shorter than the other foot. So they had to give him a built-up shoe, but he stayed in the Army. got married, had two sons in the Army. His wife left him for another man, another rejection, but left him with the boys to raise And he realized he couldn't do that and remain in the Army. So he retired, took the boys home to Kansas, the only place he knew, started a construction company. And when they grew up and left the home, he thought, now what? Larry decided to go back to church and went to the only place he knew, the Seventh-day Adventist church that had been so legalistic. He said, some things have changed there and some things haven't. Some things haven't changed. And now he was at camp meeting. Sabbath morning, first service, I preached again, and Larry was no longer standing against the back wall. He'd come to the back row and was sitting down. Progress has been made. By second service, he was a third of the way down. By the afternoon service, he was two-thirds of the way down, and by Saturday night, he was front row. Sunday morning, I preached, Larry, front row. And afterwards, I had to say a quick goodbye because I had to go catch a plane, get to another appointment. Larry met me right there. He said, with tears in his eyes, he said, I want to be baptized. He said, Larry, that's wonderful news. Let me tell your pastor. Let me tell the conference president. We'll make sure that things are arranged. He said, no, you don't understand. You're going to do it. <laughs> well, Larry, you, I'm leaving. I can't do it now. I don't think I've got a baptistry full. I've got to catch a plane. He said, where are you going to be next week? I'll be preaching in Texas next week, Larry. He said, I'll be there. Well, just a second, I pick up the phone, and I call the pastor. I said, this guy named Larry here in Kansas, and he wants to show up next week in your church and have me baptize him. Could you help me? He said, yeah, we'll fill the baptistry and have a certificate ready. Well, thanks. I asked Larry a couple of qualifying questions. I said, Larry, do you know the doctrines? He said, I grew up in this church. If I don't know them by now, there's not much hope for me, don't you think? He said, all right, you you got me on that one. I asked him a couple more questions, and I'm satisfied that, all right, we're probably okay here. I said, Larry, i got to go. I'll see you next week. I took off. Next Sabbath, I show up to the church ready to preach. I'm looking around for Larry, and there he is. Larry has driven over 500 miles in an an unair conditioned truck to that church. Did it in August in Texas. And in August, Texas is not hell, but you can see it from there the glow just off in the distance a little bit you know a little bit south you know that's hell right over there you hear the screams at night <laughs> i grew up in texas so i can say that all right born and bra- raised right in texas it's hell so larry showed up there in an unair conditioned truck because larry wants to be baptized Other members from the church show up in an air-conditioned car. Why they didn't give Larry a ride, I don't understand. But they showed up just to see if it was really going to happen. I stood in the baptistry with Larry. He finally had a picture of God that spoke to his heart. He was not the angry, judgmental, critical God that he had known and grown up with. Not the God that was looking for a way to keep him out of heaven. This was the servant God, the God that loved him so much he paid the ultimate sacrifice for Larry, for Larry. The God that loved him so much he gave him a gift of eternity, a promise. The God that loved him so much he said, I'll make a difference in your life today and I'll change you to look more like me every day if you distrust me. I'll change you. A God that gave him a purpose for living, a God who said, if you come to heaven with me, One day I'm going to have you recline at my table and I will serve you, Larry. Larry, who's been rejected by everyone. Larry, whose life has been broken over and over again. I will serve you. Tears were in Larry's eyes as I lowered him into the watery grave of baptism. And when I brought him up, I saw love. I saw the glory of God in his face. I saw hope. I saw someone who's looking forward to a banquet. Someone who's going to be fed and served by God Himself. That's Larry. How many more Larrys are there around? Are they in your church, your community? Do they just need to see a picture of God that's appealing? How about you? What's your picture of God? Do you see him this way? Or in any other way? Take a look at the parable again. That's our God. And he offers to serve you. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, tonight, oh, this picture is so appealing, Lord. It's so appealing. It breaks our heart. It fills us with longing for you. So Lord, Grant us a vision of who you are. Draw us to yourself. As Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw them into me. That's what he means. When we see the truth about you, you're irresistible. So give us that picture, Lord. Draw us so that we can spend eternity with you so that one day we can recline at your table just as you promised. Lord, we look forward to that day. We claim it now, for we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.